working-class culture in Britain may have been strongest underground. The deeper you travel, the more you need the help of those around you. It's been that way for generations of mine workers. We're watching for each other all the time. That's why they're called as brothers, comrades. You find no matter where you work, when you come across each other, you've got that bond together. You always will have. It's no different in this coal mine. Whether you like it or not, you're in a group of people with common needs and goals. Except in this mine, it is different. There's no coal production here, no miners. There are guys dressed as miners who used to be miners. But this mine stopped production in 1985. It's a museum now. My guide's name is Mick Green. He used to work a dozen miles away at the Grimethorpe mine. A lot of people know Grimethorpe. It has a famous brass band who struggles after the mine closed with the subject of the movie Brassed Off. Today, Mick Green says, you wouldn't even know there'd been any mining at Grimethorpe. There's an industrial park there now. And you've got some places are call centres, some places are basically warehouses for storage. So you've lost all that where people worked, and it's cheaper workers because they're on a very low wage in call centres, aren't they? Soon after the mine closed down, the European Union named Grimethorpe the poorest village in Britain. It was never a rich place, but when the mine was open, there was an infrastructure around the mine, an infrastructure of working-class life. The brass band was part of that. So was the Miners' Institute with its recreational facilities. A cricket ground, a football ground, all provided for by money from our wages because we paid into that donations every week. There's no institute at Grimethorpe now. It's been flattened. Most of pubs has gone and most of the housing's all gone. The institute, the pubs, the housing, the work itself, it all added up to a sense of community. And communities like Grimethorpe's dotted Britain's landscape. The men who laboured at the coalface were almost mythic figures in working-class culture and in British society. In the 1980s, though, words like community and society became tainted with the politics of socialism. Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher declared there was no such thing as society. And she said class was unimportant. Thatcher wanted to reorder British public life away from the upper, middle and working classes into a nation of consumers, owners and shareholders. It should be as natural for people to own shares as it is to own their own home or to own a car. People should not be classified as either earners or owners, as either employees or shareholders. They should be both. To accomplish this, Thatcher demanded that government-owned industries privatise, or at least show a profit, starting with the coal mines. Miners were laid off. We do obey the time-honoured ritual of not crossing a picket line. The miners went on strike, and for several bitter, often violent months, the outcome was uncertain. But eventually, the union lost. The mines closed down one after another. Britain's working class lost not just jobs, but a part of their identity. Margaret Thatcher had won her battle against unionized labor. Her successors, John Major and Tony Blair, built on those foundations. Major made it a central goal of his tenure to establish what he called a classless society. Tony Blair, though, had a different problem. His Labour Party was traditionally the party of the working class, So Blair's new Labour broadened its appeal and won three consecutive general elections. By then, 
everyone was supposed to be middle class. Two years ago, Labour finally lost out to a conservative-led coalition. Not that you could tell the difference, says Owen Jones. Jones has written a book about class attitudes in today's Britain. He says both main parties think the same way. The political consensus has developed around the idea that being working class is something to escape from. And being working class is almost being on the wrong side of history, seen as this throwback to an industrial past which has disappeared. And it's this idea, this universal idea, which all politicians on left and right have embraced, we're all middle class. But Britain is far from all middle class. About 20% of the population lives below the official poverty line, and many others are struggling. And unlike in the past, this group of people doesn't have much of a collective identity or much of a voice. Union membership is barely half what it was when Margaret Thatcher came to power. And the jobs available, like at the call centre where the Grimethorpe mine used to be, those jobs are far less secure. It's not a job for life often. There's a huge turnover. There's more part-time work, lots of temporary workers who don't have basic rights. So this workforce, this new working class, if you like, is it's cleaner, the jobs are cleaner, less back-breaking, but less prestigious and often far less pay. The people who get by, or often don't get by on these jobs, are not courted by politicians or represented by unions. In fact, they're often lumped in the same category as pretty much anyone else who doesn't fit into the middle class. The long-term unemployed, for example. The people who rioted in many British cities last summer. And also a certain popular TV character. This boot camp is home to Vicky Pollard, a member of Britain's thriving underclass. Underclass is a word that's been in vogue in Britain for the past decade, as have TV shows that caricature poor, uneducated people. Vicky Pollard's a character from the show Little Britain. She's lazy, promiscuous, thieving and violent. In the version made for HBO, Vicky Pollard goes to an American boot camp for wayward youth and is questioned by a counsellor. And what about school? Oh, yeah, I went there once. It was all right. You went there once? Yeah, yeah. I've done math, or something enough, and Histography, biometry, and... Oh, what's that one where they're all talking some weird language in that and you can't really understand it? French? No, English. It's one thing to mock the so-called underclass on TV. Vicky Pollard is pretty funny. But it's more troubling when the stereotyping happens in real life. Police emergency. This is four years ago. A woman is reporting her daughter missing. Right, how old is she? Nine. Nine? Yeah. When did you last see her? The mother is Karen Matthews. She lived on a housing project, didn't work, had lots of kids, and appeared to have lots of sexual partners. A few days after she made that call, Matthews appealed to the public. Somebody's out there that has actually got Shannon. It's just broken the family that we had apart. Karen Matthews was lying. She knew where her daughter Shannon was, hidden in the house of a family friend. Police found Shannon Matthews a few weeks later alive. The plan had been for that family friend to find Shannon and then claim the reward money that a newspaper had put up. For the news media, Karen Matthews became the sick representative of an entire class. The family's chaotic nature, five fathers, seven children, and the whole benefits culture that went along with it opened the eyes of the country to an underclass that many of us choose usually to ignore. 
the tabloids were much harsher. A writer for the now defunct News of the World wrote of a subhuman class who contribute nothing to society yet believe it owes them a living. Good-for-nothing scroungers who have no morals and no compassion. The Reverend Kathy Robertson is driving me around the housing project where the Matthews family lived. This is the edge of Dewsbury, a town in the north of England. The buildings here are squat, red brick, a few are boarded up, but most have well-kept yards. It's all set against the backdrop of the rolling Pennine Hills. Even a few years after Shannon Mania, as it's called here, Kathy Robertson is wary of the snap judgment of outsiders. I feel very protective, I feel very angry, and I meet people on a regular basis that will talk in a very condescending and a very disrespectful way of this this area in this community, and it just really makes me feel very cross. We stop at a place called the Community House. Four years ago, this was a neighbourhood hub in the effort to find Shannon. It was the one good thing that came out of that time, locals say. People got to know each other as they wrote flyers and made calls. <laughs> Naomi Fisher is here today. She grew up here and lives four doors from where the Matthews lived. Fisher shudders as she recalls what was said and written about people like her who lived on the housing estate. The, the worst part of it is that because Karen Matthews' family itself was completely um, different fathers here, there and everywhere, and because her sense of family was the way it was, they just assumed that the entire estate was like that. But there are, there are so many married couples on the estate with children who all have the same father, who go out to work, um, but they didn't focus on that. They, they focused on the negative. Fisher tells me she herself has four kids and has at times been out of work, her husband too. It's tough, even more so now with the country in recession. Fisher figures she'll be able to afford to send just one of her kids to college. It's not like the old days when college was free. But subsidising education is less of a priority these days, even at a time when government officials say there's a shortage of well-trained teachers and medical professionals. They're complaining that there's a lack of nurses, a lack of doctors. Well, pay then for, the, for these, these children, these young adults, to, to train to do that. Don't sit there and, and complain about it. Pay for it. Never mind the banker and his big, you know, his, his big bonus. The bankers' big bonuses, just when Britain's economy is shrinking, have struck a nerve across the country. Suddenly, class divisions are back in the limelight. It comes as a shock to some politicians. The political parties, it seemed, had written off class as a phase that Britain went through. When David Cameron became prime minister two years ago, for example, it wasn't a big deal that his cabinet was overwhelmingly made up of privileged men and women educated in elite private schools. But the anger over bankers and the recession has changed that. Just this month, Conservative MP Nadine Doris labelled Cameron and his finance minister, George Osborne, posh and out of touch. I think that not only are Cameron and Osborne two posh boys who don't know the price of milk, but they're two arrogant posh boys who show no remorse, no contrition and no passion to want to understand the lives of others. And that is their real crime. This attack from a Conservative MP directed at her own party leaders has raised eyebrows, and it comes in the midst of a debate in Britain over whether the Cameron government's economic vision is off-kilter, whether it's too reliant on banking and financial services and not enough on manufacturing. People who work in banking don't tend to belong to a union, 
In manufacturing, they do. So a move toward manufacturing would likely revive the unions. Writer Owen Jones would welcome that. Britain's poor, its underclass, its working class, whatever name you want to call them, they need their interests represented, says Jones. The problem is there's been a real sense of defeatism in the Labour movement, the miners' strike being the classic example. It's often romanticised, a glorious fight, but the miners lost. What the Labour movement needs to do is to pick struggles where they can win and then to really yell about them. And Jones looks to a couple of unlikely places for inspiration. To China, where independent unions are outlawed, but groups representing workers have won concessions in factories. Also to the United States, where attempts to ban collective bargaining in some states has met with surprisingly strong opposition. When I was in America myself, I went on a AFL-CIO rally in Michigan on the anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination. And that was brilliant. It was attracted a very broad range of people and they're taking a very creative approach to this attack on union rights. And that's what has to happen in this country too. Trade union activists in particular have to look, not least because we're so weak, to community groups, to wider activist groups, to broaden out and and look at ways to win wider public support. But America shows it can be done. In Britain right now, though, unions are relatively weak. The working class have lost much of their culture and identity. And the country is being run by men and women from the upper crust. There are the haves and there are the have-nots. There are the rich and there are the poor. There are those who rise and those who sink. Filmmaker Mike Lee has been trading in the nuances of class difference for his entire career in films like Secrets and Lies and Vera Drake. For Lee, classlessness is a mirage. There is always class, and there's no question that continues to be the case in these islands. Of course it does. Um, And you can certainly look at the current political landscape and apply that very, very accurately to what's going on and who's in charge and who are on the losing end and who's on the winning end, of course. It may be true that Britain is among the world's most class-obsessed nations, but the story of these past decades and the attempt by politicians of all political stripes to transcend class, to rise above it, this story may tell a wider story about whether any society can completely free itself of such social markings. In Britain and elsewhere, there may be no getting beyond class. For The World, I'm Patrick Cox.